I'm Dennis Tuberg, and this is the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program. Glad you decided to listen in today. Hey, joining me on today's program is the head of research at Gold Money, Mr. Alistair McLeod. If you have been a longtime listener to the program, you probably recall that Alistair was on the program at the end of 2020, and during my interview with him then, he predicted that we would see a hyperinflationary event involving the U.S. dollar by the end of 2021. Well, he's going to join me today in the second and third segments of today's program, and I'll ask him if he is going, if he's changed his views at all or what his current viewpoint is, and certainly you'll want to stay tuned for that interview. Now, the big news over the past couple of weeks, there's, there's a lot going on in the financial news, the investment news, um, the economic news. But Bitcoin, which is the leading cryptocurrency, took an absolute pounding in price over the past couple of weeks. On May 9, Bitcoin was selling for about 59,000 U.S. dollars. That means one Bitcoin was selling for 59,000 U.S. dollars. And just 10 days later, on May 19, it was selling briefly for 30,000. So that's a decline of using rough math, about 50% in a 10-day time frame. Now, I have talked in the past about my view uh, with cryptocurrencies. I view cryptocurrencies as purely a speculative investment, uh, and I'll talk about that more in this segment. But the news story, the, the mainline news story was that the decline in Bitcoin came about because Chinese authorities and U.S. authorities announced they were going to crack down on Bitcoin. Now, in the case of China, China really just reiterated a position that they'd already taken regarding Bitcoin. The vice premier of China said that tighter regulation is needed to protect the financial system. Let me give you a quote from the vice premier's statement. It is necessary to, quote, crack down on Bitcoin mining and trading behavior and resolutely prevent the transmission of individual risks to the social field. Now, the Treasury Department in the United States now said it will require reporting on cryptocurrencies of more than $10,000, just as with cash. So if you go into an establishment or go into a bank and you have more than $10,000 in cash, there is a form that is required to report that you had that much cash. That will now apply to crypto transfers. And U.S. officials said they need to do this because it will stem illegal activity, including tax evasion. Now, certainly, there are likely illegal activities that take place using cryptocurrencies. But getting past that for a minute, you have to ask yourself why cryptocurrencies have become as popular as they've been. After all, an important question to ask yourself is, why is a Bitcoin that wasn't even worth a penny a dozen years ago now selling for as much as $60,000 when nothing involving Bitcoin has inherently changed. 
It's still a digital unit of currency, a digital unit of air, if you will. So when you think about it, it really doesn't make any sense. But when you put that question in context with what's going on with fiat currencies, it starts to make a little more sense. You have people looking for alternate ways to store wealth. See, governments and central bankers around the world have severely jeopardized the future of fiat currencies because they've simply created too much money. So trying to regulate away from cryptocurrencies may be partly to do with stopping illicit activities, but when you look at what's really been going on, it may be more about trying to preserve weakening fiat currencies. Now, back in 2017, in November, to be exact, that's about three and a half years ago now, I wrote that cryptocurrencies will likely never be used in everyday commerce by a majority of the population. I still hold to that view because cryptos lack something that every currency must have. Stability. Think about this for a minute. If you were going to sell a car, Would you take for your used car in payment Bitcoin or would you prefer U.S. dollars? Well, given that Bitcoin dropped 50% in value in 10 days, the U.S. dollar by comparison is a lot more stable, although it in and of itself is weakening by the day. See, in order for a currency to be widely accepted, those using the currency have to have an expectation that the currency will have about the same value of purchasing power from one week to the next. Users of a currency will tolerate a little bit of a variance, but for the most part, it needs to be stable. That's the number one characteristic that a currency needs to have. That applies not only to cryptocurrencies, but also to fiat currencies. So stability is not a characteristic of the current crop of cryptocurrencies. And central banks, as we've talked about on past programs, are now venturing into the territory of exploring digital currencies. China has been testing a digital currency, and it has not been a success. It has been a dismal failure. Janet Yellen, the current current Treasury Secretary, has said that we need to develop a digital dollar. And Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed, said a digital dollar is a high priority. So you have all these central banks now around the world that are saying we need to have a digital currency. Well, certainly, blockchain technology, which is used to Uh, manage cryptocurrencies, if you will, to prevent too much, too many cryptocurrencies from being created um, is a really great technology. But the reality is central banks can't use that. They can't use blockchain technology until spending gets under control. And it appears that that is not going to happen. It seems that given current government policies, deficits are going to continue to widen. So any digital currency that would be used would be no better than a current 
fiat currency. Be no better than the paper currency that we now use. See, if these central bank digital currencies are issued in the same massive quantities as fiat currencies are currently issued, nothing's going to change. We're going to see inflation, perhaps, as I'll talk about in the next segment with my guest, Alistair McLeod, hyperinflation, because the users of the currency will have no confidence in the currency. Now, there are a number of reasons that central banks and governments would like currencies to be 100% digital. For one thing, as I talked about with my guest on last week's program, John Rubino, it would be far easier for negative interest rates to be imposed if all currencies were digital. You wouldn't have the option to take your paper currency and put it, in a, put it in a safe in your basement. Digital currencies reside on a computer somewhere. And if all currency resides on a computer server and there's not an option for cash, imposing negative interest rates would be quite easy. Second, if there are no transactions that take place in cash, if all transactions take place digitally, say goodbye to financial privacy. Now, central bankers and governments are citing this as the primary reason digital currencies are necessary, to crack down and expose illegal activities. The reality is that if digital currencies become a widespread reality, Another of our individual liberties, financial privacy, will no longer exist. And as someone who looks at things from a libertarian perspective, that is disturbing. Now, if you've not yet gotten our May report titled The Five Threats to Your Retirement and How to Potentially Avoid Them, I would encourage you to visit the website requestyourreportnow.com. The website, again, is requestyourreportnow.com. And I'd be very glad to send you a copy of the report. Just let us know, again, where you'd like it mailed. We'll send it to you at no cost, no further obligation. It's just our way of getting the message out. Also, if you don't yet have the RLA app, it gives you access to the weekly headline roundup webinar. It gives you access to our podcast as well as the weekly newsletter. It's all free. The app is free. Go to the App Store on your phone and search under your RLA. That's Y-O-U-R-R-L-A. All is one word, and you can download the app for free. I'll be back after these words with Mr. Alistair McLeod. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Joining me again on today's program is returning guest, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Alistair is the head of research at Gold Money. Uh, you can check out his work at goldmoney.com. And if you click on the Insights tab, you'll get Alistair's articles. It's uh, one of my go-to sources for uh, uh, news about metals and economics, and I would encourage you to check it out as well. Alistair, welcome back to the program, and thank you for joining us. It's very much my pleasure, Dennis. So, Alistair, let me just start, because uh, you were on the program uh, in December, so we'll just say about uh, five to six months ago, and it was your thought then that given uh, monetary policies that uh, we could see a hyperinflation by the end of 2021, and it seems that 
we have inflation now emerging. Uh, we're seeing prices of uh, groceries, lumber, copper wire, everything uh, going through the roof. Um, is this the beginning of the end? Are you, are you maintaining that view? Uh, yes, I am maintaining that view. Um, and uh, this was very much what I expected. Um, it's, it, it's going to be very interesting to see how it pans out. Um, I think I think the, the, the underlying problem is that the Fed, and this is not the only central bank doing this, by the way, they're all doing this. The Fed is um, uh, using quantitative easing basically to uh, keep the financial asset bubble inflated. The one that they're really concerned with, obviously, is uh, the government uh, bond market, uh, U.S. Treasuries, in, in the case of the Fed. Uh, they want to keep the yields of those as low as possible because they, one of their prime tasks, basically, is to ensure that the government deficit is funded. And as we all know, that government deficit has enlarged very substantially uh, over the last 18 months. So they do have a problem that they need to satisfy that funding. That's the first thing. And the second thing is that central banks have got this idea in their heads that if you um, have a bull market in stocks, then that um, creates uh, wealth, if you like, for um, the people that you, um, you know, sort of typically think as the ordinary person who is probably middle class rather than, let us say, um, the average person on the high street. Creating that wealth also creates confidence in the overall economy, and they think that confidence is the thing which is most important. Now, there is a fallacy in all that argument insofar as actually what they're doing is they are um, diluting the purchasing power of the currency in the process. But they've managed to cover this up to a large extent by um, uh, changing the way in which uh, the, um, the consumer price index is constructed. And uh, just to show you how uh, um, they have changed things, um, uh, John Williams at shadowstats.com currently uh, reckons that uh, on the old basis by which the CPI was calculated, and he's going back to 1980, the current rate of price inflation is running at about 11 to 12 percent. Now, that's an awful long way from 2 percent, as you can see. But the Fed insists that the rate of inflation is struggling even to get to 2 percent. And they see that prices will rise probably beyond that, um, but they think it will come back down. So uh, the story that's coming out of the central bank is very much um, at odds with what's going on. Because as you rightly pointed out, Dennis, I mean, we've got uh, particularly food prices, the raw materials that feed into, um, uh, you know, what we eat, uh, energy, um, things like lumber, um, even copper. All these, all these industrial materials and raw materials have just been going through the roof. And this is, this is not because there's sort of wonderful demand going to happen uh, from everywhere. It is because the purchasing power of the currency is going down. And this is the basis, really, of what I think um, is inevitably going to turn into hyperinflation. You know, Alistair, I was struck as you were talking that, uh, you know, John Williams, who's actually going to be a guest on my program in a couple of weeks, uh, you know, that, that when you look at 11 to 12 percent inflation, that is 70s style inflation. And I believe it was in 1980, then Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker to, to, to subdue inflation, 
raised interest rates to approaching 20%, and, and certainly it worked to subdue inflation. But it seems that given the level of debt that exists today on a, on a national level, on a worldwide level, you know, that's really not an option now. I would agree. I would agree with you entirely. Um, and so in that sense, without that escape route, it seems to me that the Fed is boxed into a corner. But now let us imagine um, that interest rates start rising in the summer. In fact, it's very hard to imagine a situation where interest rates will not uh, rise in the next uh, uh, two or three months. But let us assume that they do rise in the next two or three months. Now, that would unsettle, obviously, um, uh, not just U.S. Treasury prices, but it would also unsettle the stock market. Now, uh, what does the Fed do then if it appears that we've entered a bear market? Well, what they do basically is they need to raise interest rates um, somewhat to try and take the steam out of expectations on the interest rate front. But then what they will do is they will probably have to increase the level of QE in order to support markets, to stop markets going down. Now, this is... um, you know, this, this then is getting into real craziness, um, and it's very difficult to see how they can stop it. But um, what it amounts to is that they will have to continue to print dollars in order to keep the stock market bubble inflated. Now, this is exactly the situation that John Law had in France in 1720, and he failed. The Mississippi bubble basically burst, and it took the currency down with it. The currency, incidentally, which shares the characteristic of the dollar of being completely unbacked by any precious metals. So um, really, I think what uh, we're seeing central banks doing today, really led by the Fed, is they're just doing what John Law did 300 years ago. They haven't learned the lesson. But what it does mean, as far as we're concerned, is the purchasing power of these paper currencies will go down towards zero. Um, Now, hopefully they won't get to zero, but uh, we can see the purchasing power is going to fall very, very substantially. And the only way in which they can get out of it uh, is to mobilize their gold reserves and turn fiat currencies into credible uh, gold substitutes. Um, I think eventually that is something that will happen, but uh, it's difficult to see that they have, have the understanding of knowing what is involved in that, because it also involves... Um, not just setting up a credible um, uh, gold exchange system, but uh, which which must involve coins rather than bullion, incidentally, because it's got to be at every level throughout the economy for ordinary people as well. But the other problem is that governments need to cut their um, uh, their intervention in the economy, and by that I mean they need to reduce their uh, involvement in GDP to less than 20% of the total. That's going to be a very, very different um, scenario for a current crop of politicians who only know about warfare and welfare. You know, Alistair, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, ironically, uh, you know, rising uh, interest rates and, uh, you know, massive inflation uh, designed to keep the stock bubble uh, going could ultimately be the the catalyst that brings it down. Isn't that rather ironic? Um, it's, I think it is inevitable. Um, yes, I mean, <laughs> it seems uh, ironic, but it is, in effect, inevitable. Uh, and I just can't see how they can get away, you know, get out of this trap, because 
in order to get out of the trap, they would just have to stand back and say, our policy has failed. We've obviously got it wrong. We're just going to be hands off and let the market sort itself out. I really find it impossible to see that policy being followed uh, before a crisis. Um, bringing on a crisis is not what bureaucrats are employed to do. So how do you see this crisis playing out? Um, I think basically um, it's, we need to um, uh, study the John Law situation um, and uh, uh, what will happen if, if this current situation follows that playbook, and I can't see how it cannot. What will happen is that um, rising interest rates, which I think will be as early as, as this summer, so in a matter of a month or two, we will start seeing rising interest rates or, alternatively, we will see uh, the Fed trying to prepare markets for the potential for a small rise in interest rates. That's what they would hope would contain it. Um, and maybe some tapering. I'm sure that that's what they will try and do. That won't, won't succeed. The rises that we're seeing in prices, particularly of um, uh, essential goods, such as uh, food and energy, I think puts the whole lie on the CPI um, statistic, and uh, everybody realizes it. The foreigners will find that the dollar is not giving them returns. You have got roughly 10.7 trillion on current estimates, 10.7 trillion of foreign-owned investments in uh, the U.S. stock market. Now, um, so far, that's uh, worked extremely well for the foreigners. But the moment the market turns down, which is really what a popping bubble is, uh, they're going to flee the scene. Um, and they'll have to leave quite quickly. Otherwise, uh, they, <laughs> their losses are just going to mount. So you can see there's going to be pressure at the same time on both the dollar and also uh, um, the stock market. So the, the, the two bubbles, as it were, the valuation of the dollar um, and the valuation of the stock market are inextricably linked and, I, linked, and I think they will go down together. Alistair, we have just a couple minutes left in this segment. Uh, there may be some listeners out there that are not familiar with the work of gold money. Could you take a minute and just explain a bit about what your company does? Yes, uh, certainly. I'd be very happy to. Um, gold Money was set up in 2002 by James Turk. Uh, we were acquired by um, a Canadian company, which changed its name to Gold Money. Uh, but basically what we do is we store precious metals on behalf of uh, our customers uh, in uh, vaults around the world. I think we've got 11 different um, vaults which we can offer our customers. The storage is outside the banking system, which is crucial uh, because if you have the banks involved, then if you get bank failures, you've got counterparty risk. So obviously, we don't want our customers to have that. Uh, and um, our customers can choose where they store their gold and silver, uh, which very often, I mean, I, th I think we've got a lot of American customs, for customers, for example, who uh, uh, remember or uh, recall reading about um, the confiscation of gold back in 1933 and uh, just want to make it a little bit harder for the government to confiscate their gold. So typically, they will store their gold away from America um, we have uh, British people like me who will store it away from London. Um, and it's all about ensuring that you protect yourself against the demise of fiat currencies. And that's basically what we do.
Well, our guest today is Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money, and I'll continue my conversation with Mr. McLeod when RLA Radio returns. Stay with us. Welcome back to RLA Radio. I'm Dennis Tubergen. I am chatting today uh, with one of my favorite guests. He is the head of research at Gold Money, Mr. Alistair McLeod. Uh, if you're just joining us, you can learn more about Alistair's work at goldmoney.com. I would encourage you to click on the Insights link where you'll see uh, many of Alistair's articles published. And Alistair, of late, you have been writing about, uh, just this past week, in fact, the article was titled The End of Paper, Gold, and Silver Markets. And I think a lot of our listeners out there that understand that they, they should own some precious metals in their portfolio, but they have no idea as to the difference between paper, gold, and silver and physical gold and silver. So can we start at a very basic level and explain the difference? Yes, of course. I mean, physical is very easy to understand in that um, you can probably go into, um, a, you know, a, a specialist store and you can buy, say, a silver coin, and that is silver. Um, and assuming the coin is, um, let's say, you know, a U.S. coin or a British coin or whatever, um, it will be solid silver. And so you know that you have got the predetermined weight of that coin in silver. That is physical metal. You can also buy it in bar form. And what is true of silver is also true of gold. So you can buy gold um, either in um, uh, uh, coins or alternatively uh, in, in ingots. Um, and uh, the standard bar, if you like, is, is a one kilo uh, bar refined to 99.99% uh, gold. And that's actually the Chinese standard. And you've got the, the uh, London bullion market standard, which is a 400-ounce bar, uh, and that's refined to 95.5% minimum. So th that's physical gold, and I think that's quite simple to understand. But there is also what we refer to as paper gold. In other words, um, substitutes for gold which aren't actual gold, and uh, they may be deliverable in the form of gold. Uh, for example, if you look at the futures market, the COMEX futures market, the gold contract um, is ultimately deliverable in gold. But very, very few people who buy and sell futures either take delivery or deliver gold. So that is, an assess in essence, a paper market. By far the largest paper market in the world is uh, the London forward market. Now, Forward um, uh, deals for more than two days. I mean, the normal settlement cycle is uh, uh, you would go into the market, you would buy gold, and it would be delivered and against payment in two days' time. That is a standard uh, um, physical deal, if you like. But in London, you can deal for settlement uh, forward for longer times. So typically, someone might hedge a position by buying gold forward for delivery in one month's time. And they would look to close out the position by, by buying back for the same settlement date at a later time when they no longer need that, uh, that, that, that uh, price cover. So you've got two basic forms of uh, derivatives there. There are also options, um, and you can 
buy an option, um, you can buy a call option or a put option, or you can sell a call option or sell a put option. Those, again, are all derivatives, ultimately delivered, uh, deliverable in gold, but very rarely done so. Uh, the reason that they are um, effectively uh, meant to be deliverable in gold is because that is the way in which the value of the options or the value of the futures or the value of the forwards are tied to the gold spot price. So that basically, so you've got those two big markets. You've got the real stuff, if you like, physical delivery, and you've got the synthetic stuff, which, um, uh, you know, in practice uh, is very rarely uh, ends in uh, the delivery of physical metal. So, Alistair, a couple of things I guess I'd like you to, to, to chat about. Uh, one, uh, it, it seems that... Uh, these these bullion banks can can literally create gold out of thin air by simply creating more contracts. And then the second thing I'd like you to talk about is how leveraged are these markets? How much physical gold is actually backing these derivatives? Yes, um, the, the I mean basically uh, you're right. The banks operating in these markets with with their bullion bank trading desks uh, can literally uh, print the money to buy contracts or to take a position out of thin air. It is, a, it is an extension of the creation of credit, if you like. So if we look at the London forwards market, that is dealing on what the uh, London Bullion Market Association describes as unallocated gold. In other words, um, you know, the deals do not involve physical gold bars um, you know, of specific weights, um, specific fineness, because they're all different. Um, but it is, if you like, a sort of a general um, uh, assumption that uh, if, you, um, if you do a forward deal, say, in um, one 500-ounce LBMA bar, then it is 100% gold for the purpose of the contract. Um, but, it's, of course, it's not gold. This is just paper. And the way in which uh, the um, uh, bullion bank uh, creates a position is that it creates for itself the credit for its dealing desk to actually go out and buy a contract or indeed sell a contract short. So um, it is something that is made out of thin air, if you like. That's the best way to describe it. Uh, in the case of futures contracts, it, it's exactly the same process. Uh, a bank has the ability to create credit out of thin air, and it uses that to finance its dealing desk. It just so happens that both futures and forward deals, uh, instead of them being done, let us say, in straightforward dollars, where a depositor in the bank, let us say, has a, um, uh, has a, uh, um, a credit from the bank. Uh, in other words, the bank has a liability to the depositor uh, measured in dollars. Um, it is just measured in gold. But it's purely synthetic. The gold isn't there. The gold is a reference price, in effect. So that's the... That's the way in which these things are actually created. And then uh, as far as leverage goes, Alistair, uh, you, you would know better than I, but some of the research that I've done uh, shows that uh, these, are, these markets are highly leveraged. So, for example, I think it was May 6, 7, and 10, if my, my memory serves me, that uh, there were uh, contracts, short gold contracts created by bullion banks that really amounted to the equivalent of about a third of all the gold even registered to COMEX. So that's really highly leveraged. And, and you can correct me if, uh, if, if that is not, a, if that, those facts are a little bit off. 
Um, you, no, you're, 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 you're right. It is very highly leveraged, and even more so in London. The last figures we have um, are actually compiled by the Bank of International Settlements, and including London, there are a few other um, smaller centres, but including London, they reckon that the total value of outstanding contracts is in the region of, of about $550 billion. I mean, this is huge. We're looking at about... If you, if you take uh, both um, uh, COMEX, the COMEX gold contracts, and uh, um, uh, the Ford derivatives, uh, we're looking at about 11,500 tons of gold equivalent just in those two markets. Now, in terms of liquidity in the markets, which um, is the other thing we've got to look at, we don't know what the figure is in London, but just by um, uh, taking out uh, ETF-owned gold, uh, making an allowance for uh, central bank-owned gold, and also for gold held by private individuals, and that is something we can only assess at. It's very difficult to see how there can be more than three or 400 tons of liquidity in the London market, and probably not even that. So that's extreme. Uh, so, yeah. So, Alistair, uh, in, in the time we have left, you, you wrote an article this past week titled The End of Paper, Gold, and Silver Markets. So uh, hopefully we've laid a, a bit of a foundation maybe for this next question. Can, can you explain uh, the premise of the article and, uh, and what that's about and, and why you're concluding that? Yes. Um, after the great financial crisis, uh, the um, Basel Committee, which is a subset of the Bank of International Settlements, was uh, given the task of coming up with new regulations that would prevent uh, uh, bank um, uh, risk, if you like, escalating throughout the banking system. And uh, this is the whole basis behind the new Basel III uh, set of regulations. Now, the regulations uh, must be adopted, uh, certainly in principle, by um, all the banking systems around the world. Uh, and uh, we have in Europe, the European Banking Authority, which regulates the Eurozone's banks uh, and banks, uh, if you like, in, uh, in Europe, which aren't in the Eurozone. Um, they are introducing these new rules um, at the end of June, which is the end of the second quarter. Now, basically what it means is that there is a penalty uh, for banks. Uh, it's, a, it's a balance sheet penalty, in effect, um, uh, for banks uh, holding positions, derivative positions in gold. I won't go into it in great detail, but what it basically means is that it is no longer economic for, uh, for banks to run bullion desks uh, with uneven positions. And uh, there are probably problems in some jurisdictions um, of just even running a balanced position. But anyway, we won't go into that. The point is that the European Banking um, uh, Authority is introducing its rules at the end of June. The Bank of England has finished its consultation period and has said that it will introduce these rules uh, on the 1st of January 2022, in other words, at the end of this calendar year. Now, that means that all the members of the London Bullion Market Association, whatever their ownership, will have to comply with these rules. And again, it's going to be uneconomic for them to do so. Now, the problem from there is that we can see how this is effectively going to shut down the unallocated gold market in London. But the problem is that as far as COMEX is concerned, you've got the same players in London as you have on COMEX. So, 
substantially, the business in COMEX, which is meant to be hedging London positions, though very often it's taking naked positions, that position, that business is also going to be cut out. So the COMEX gold and silver contracts are going to see uh, a very substantial withdrawal of liquidity. Now, not only that, but the bullion banks on COMEX uh, have short positions valued roughly at around about $30 billion. And that's between a total of um, about 17 long and 27 banks being short. So the question is, how are they going to manage to close those positions? And they're going to have to close them effectively by the end of this calendar year. So you can see that there is some pressure for banks to withdraw from the market ahead of uh, that uh, end date that the, uh, the British are putting on the London Bullion Market Association. And that could have uh, the effect of transferring unsatisfied demand from the paper markets into the physical market. So what I would expect to see is uh, the availability of physical metal um, being very restricted with a market which specifically for uh, allocated gold and allocated silver is increasing because of the demise of uh, the unallocated market. Well, fascinating. We're going to have to leave it there. My guest today has been Mr. Alistair McLeod. He is the head of research at Gold Money. Uh, you can check out his work at goldmoney.com. Click on the Insights link, and you'll, be, uh, get, you'll get access to all of Alistair's articles. So, Alistair, thanks so much for joining us today. Always a pleasure to chat with you, and uh, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, chat with me and my audience. That was very much my pleasure, Dennis. Thank you for having me. We will return after these words. are listening to RLA Radio. I'm your host, Dennis Tubergen. Glad you're listening in today, and I hope you got some important insights from my conversation with Mr. Alistair McLeod, who is the head of research at Gold Money. Hey, if you're just joining me, uh, you have one more opportunity to get our May special report titled The Five Threats to Your Retirement and How to Avoid Them. If you'd like to get your free copy of that report, simply go to the website requestyourreportnow.com. The website is requestyourreportnow.com, and I'd be very glad to mail you mail you rather your complimentary copy. We talked about a bit about inflation in the last segment with Alistair McLeod, and as Alistair noted, the current actual inflation rate prior to the manipulations that have taken place in determining what the inflation rate is to make the actual reported numbers look lower is probably between 11 and 12 percent. Now, the last time we saw inflation at these levels was the late 70s. Some of you may be old enough to remember that. Well, at that time, Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker got inflation under control by raising interest rates to something around 20%. Now, the relationship between interest rates and inflation is an interesting one, and it's unique 
to the fractionalized banking system under which we operate. In our system, the fractionalized banking system, money is loaned into existence. So let me go back to the 70s. At that time, banks were required to reserve a percentage of deposits, 10%. So let's say someone went and put $100,000 into the bank. The bank would have to reserve 10% or $10,000 and could loan out the other 90%. By virtue of the fact that these loans and subsequent deposits moved from bank to bank, money was created. So if central bankers wanted to create more money, they would simply reduce interest rates. And if they wanted to reduce the money supply, they would raise interest rates. Well, you can imagine at 20-plus percent interest in 1980, after Federal Reserve Chair Paul Volcker raised interest rates to that level, there was not a lot of people that were eager to go out and borrow money. So the money supply contracted, and inflation was brought under control. Now, here's the rub. The Fed is really trapped at this point, as we talked about with Mr. McLeod. Should interest rates move to even a more normal rate, say 5%, the government can't afford interest on the debt. Now, the Fed has another problem. In the past, whenever there was a stock market collapse, whenever there has been a need to try to reflate the bubble, the Fed has reduced interest rates to do so. For example, after the tech stock implosion in the early 2000s, rates were cut from 6% down to about 1%. From 2007 to 2009, interest rates were cut to zero, and because that didn't work, the Fed began to engage in quantitative easing or money creation. Interest rates today are at 0%. And money creation has intensified. So here's the question. When this everything bubble bursts, what is the Fed going to do? They can't cut interest rates because interest rates are already at 0%. Their only option will be greater money creation, which may also be difficult given the current inflationary environment. See, when the everything bubble bursts, I believe we could be at the point that there are no alternatives left except take our lumps. I expect it will be painful. Ultimately, though, history teaches us that once we get through the downturn, we will likely move back to a sound money system, not because the politicians will think it's a good idea, but because the population will demand it. See, the Federal Reserve, comprised of private central bankers, are presently pursuing policies that are making the wealthy even wealthier, while lower-income and middle-income workers see a greater percentage of their paychecks going to cover cost-of-living essentials. If you've been to the grocery store, you know exactly what I mean. And if you're a saver or an investor, you have seen the purchasing power of your nest egg significantly eroded. That's why I have long advocated 
for the two-bucket approach to investing. And I've done this since the financial crisis when it became apparent that the Federal Reserve's policy would be money creation in ever-increasing quantities. And that's exactly the policies that they have pursued. So in my view, it's almost certain now that we will see inflation followed by deflation or a collapse of the everything bubble. So the two-bucket approach simply has you having some of your assets set aside to capitalize on the everything bubble bursting and another bucket of assets, if you will, to protect you from inflation. This is outlined in the May report, the five threats to your retirement and how to potentially avoid them. I'd be glad to send you a copy. As I said, at the outset of this segment, just go to requestyourreportnow.com and I'll be very glad to send you your complimentary copy. Again, the website to request your report is requestyourreportnow.com. That's all the time I have for this week. Glad you decided to tune in. Hope you got something you can use and I will be back again next week.